This is Pastor Clint Ribble, and you're listening to the Grace Point Church Podcast. For more information, please visit gracepoint.net. Well, first Sunday of the year. What better to talk about than Duck Dynasty? How many of you... Uh, unabashedly or abashedly would admit or lay claim to the fact that you have watched, do watch at least one episode of Duck Dynasty. How many of you have never seen an episode of Duck Dynasty? Oh, uncultured people. (laughs) I bet you've never seen Beverly Hillbillies either, have you? Recently, two worlds collided. And the explosion that ensued was cosmic, it was spiritual, and it was informative, for me at least. Phil Robertson, the bearded patriarch of A&E's hit reality show Duck Dynasty and the founder of Duck Commander, a successful Louisiana duck call making company, collided with the world of GQ magazine. GQ magazine that, uh, a much ballyhooed magazine, a magazine that some of you subscribe to. Uh, I've come to feel in recent years that it's become a bit stilted and it efforts to get as as many cuss words as it can into every article to somehow be cool and urbane and secular. But I still like the advertisements and try not to look like the guys on the pages of the magazine because I'm getting older and I don't want to be silly. But uh, there's a lot about the magazine I'm sure that's good. But those two worlds are quite disparate. Did you know? Phil Robertson and GQ magazine. He had quite an interview with them. A portion of the interview, a part that stirred the most angst on both sides, I want to read to you now. I will dispense for the sake of just discretion and the fact that I was 30 years old before I said pregnant in public because I come from a very, we just don't say certain words and talk about body parts and so I will dispense with the most interesting part of his comments about body parts but I think you'll get the gist of it here. He tells the interviewer, who obviously is a secularist, it seemed to me was a secularist with not a lot of faith affiliation, but seemed to be a good person. He said, speaking of his clan, we're Bible thumpers. Bible thumpers who just happened to end up on television. You put in your article there that the Robertson family really believes strongly that if the human race loved each other and they loved God, we would just be better off. And everybody can say, Amen, Brother Phil. Amen. We ought to just be repentant. And if that means to change our mind and see things the way God does, Amen, Brother Phil. We ought to be repentant and turn to God. And let's get on with it and everything will turn around. Oh, how I wish the interview would have ended there. (laughs) But the interviewer would not leave that alone, nor should he have. What does repentance entail? Good question. Well, in Robertson's worldview, America was a country founded upon Christian values. Thou shalt not kill, etc. And he believes that the gradual removal of Christian symbolism from public spaces has diluted those founding principles. He and Cy, everybody know Uncle Cy? Favorite character on the show. He and Cy take turns going on about why the Ten Commandments ought to be displayed outside courthouses. He sees the popularity of Duck Dynasty as a small corrective to all that we have lost. Here we go. Everything is blurred, he said. Everything is blurred on what's right and what's wrong, he says. Sin becomes fine. 
his interlocutor. The interviewer says, well, what in your mind is sinful? Question. Start with homosexual behavior. Okay, that's, that's a big statement. There's a lot of places to start when you're talking about sin, I suppose, isn't there? But what in your mind is sinful? And Phil said, start with homosexual behavior and just morph out from there. Next word out of his mouth, bestiality. Sleeping around with this woman and that woman and that woman and those men, he says. Then he paraphrases Corinthians. Don't be deceived. Neither the adulterers, the idolaters, the male prostitutes, the homosexual offenders, the greedy, the drunkards, the slanderers, the swindlers, don't be deceived. They won't inherit the kingdom of God. Don't deceive yourself, he says. It's not right. Phil Robertson believes homosexuality is a sin, if you didn't get that. Phil Robertson, employing his First Amendment rights, that I much appreciate, says that he believes homosexuality is a sin because the Bible is the Word of God, and the Bible, by his estimation, is very clear on this matter, saying that it is indeed sin, no equivocation. Phil, in referencing Scripture, he only referenced one directly in the interview, uh, and in referencing Scripture to support what I would defend is his obviously sincere opinion, yet by his own family's admission, his obviously coarse opinion. Robertson, to support that coarse a sincerely stated opinion chooses 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, and I'm going to read it. Uh, we're going to read it together. You can just look on as I read from the King James Version, which no doubt Phil grew up on as well as most of us. The scripture in GQ magazine that was put forward, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Keep that there, uh, if you would, Mike. Effeminate, the words in question. Uh, the original Greek word there is malakoi. Malakoi. Uh, malakoi, if you look at the word just basically, it's a compound word created from multiple Greek words, but when put together, it literally, in its most literal sense, at the base, when it was first created, the people who put the word together and said it the first time, put together two words that meant soft male, soft men, effeminate, malakoi, soft men, abusers of themselves with mankind, abusers of themselves with mankind. Five words translate the Greek word arsenikoitai. One word. Uh, the developers of the word arsenikoitai, pre-Paul, put together a compound set of words that literally meant men who bed males. And by the, we're not talking about selling beds, it's uh, similar to our euphemism, sleeping with someone, but it's even more strong than that. Uh, essentially to bed males, the arsenikoitai, the words were men who bed males, men who penetrate males. Men who bed males. 
Well, the hundreds of years of Bible translation since the 1611 King James Version, uh, they have ensued grappling with these 2,000-year-old words. And that's what these are. They're 2,000-year-old words set in a 2,000-year-ago context. And because Koine Greek is essentially a lost language actively, we know it only through reading and writing. It's something that all young seminarians like myself years ago did. We learned the Greek language. But as far as anybody using this language in modern settings, we don't have that. And even if they were using something akin to this, which they do in Greece, we all know how languages morph over time. We all recognize that 60% of Shakespearean Victorian language or rather, Shakespeare would only recognize 60% of what we call the English language, just a few hundred years removed. Languages morph over time. So translators have been wrestling with these two words, malakoi and arsenokoitai. And trust me, hang with me for a minute. This message is not going to be about homosexuality. We spent a lot of weeks on that back in 2012. And if we ever have a mind to circle back around to that, we'll do that. But just for, for a moment here... Different Bible translations, have been, and the ones that you may have brought with you along with your duck call today, um, translate those words Malakoi and Arsenokoitite differently. Malakoi is alternatively translated effeminate. It's translated male prostitutes. It is at times directly translated soft men. It is translated perverts. Um, Arsenokoitai, abusers of themselves with mankind, which lets you know some of the challenge of translation from 2,000-year-old languages. One word translated by five. It's, it's not as simple as you can just go word for word. One word in the Greek text that Paul used, that he knew that in his context meant something to the people he spoke to, we've had to translate with five words trying to recapture in our ideology what this possibly might have meant. Arsenokoitai is translated alternately uh, homosexuals, a word not available in the English language at the 1611 translation, by the way, word created in the last few hundred years, sodomites, sex abusers, um, homosexual offenders. Suffice to say, Phil's interpretation and use of that verse is not exceptional. It's one that I have grown up with my entire life and am surrounded by within the traditional Christian church. Not only is his interpretation and use of that text in GQ magazine not exceptional, I, I think it is shared by a vast number, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Christians perhaps, as has been somewhat indicated by the backlash against A&E's decision to suspend him from the show for a time, which they reversed and I don't know how much of that was a conscientious decision on their part and how much of it was 14 million viewers and $400 million of product. We all need to leave off. We can't judge one another's hearts. A&E made a decision. They reversed the decision, and so did Cracker Barrel. But the bottom line for me is I, I didn't need GQ Magazine or Phil Robertson to point out to me or to reveal how Christians feel, how many Christians feel about homosexuality. Our opinions, our discussions on this issue have been well documented. The six weeks that we spent as a church simply discussing the matter cost us much blood, sweat, and tears. But it was good for us as a church. We were better. We grew as a church. Not numerically, but we grew as a church. Many are quick moving away from the issue of homosexuality. Many are quick to point out that this recent flap is indicative of something much bigger than one issue. A lot of people have been quick to point out in recent weeks that this recent flap is really indicative of something uh, that I would describe as a distinctly divided world. A world polarized and separated into two sides. A world embroiled in what we commonly refer to as a culture war, a cultural war. A war between the kingdom of God and those who adamantly oppose it, the kingdom of Satan. 
a war between God and the devil, a war between God's army and Satan's infantry, God's side and the devil's side. Two sides, people say. And I beg our teenage kids to hear me in this. Two clear sides, one with the poster child with long hair and a long beard that owns a company that makes duck calls, and the other, a smooth, urbane, classy, shiny magazine. Two clear sides, those who stand for God and his kingdom and are Phil supporters, those who stand for God and the Bible, which is synonymous with those who believe homosexuality is a sin and agree with Phil, and, and the other side, those godless people who are efforting to destroy the moral fabric of society while demeaning and diminishing the Christian way of life. Two sides, clear. Personally, and I say this, you deserve to know how I feel about these important matters. Personally, I believe this whole culture war with two distinct sides and two poster children, Phil and GQ magazine, I, I personally believe that the kind of polarization that has come out of the Facebook, Twitter, social media, blog, uh, Fox, MSNBC news conversation, I believe the kind of polarization that I have seen come out of this is vast and I think it's damaging. I think it is vast and it's damaging and it is a vast and damaging oversimplification of a very vital matter. This type of polarizing, this type of either or, dualistic, black and white thinking, I believe personally tragically underestimates the complexity of this matter. I believe that it tragically underestimates the complexity of human history. It tragically underestimates the complexity of human relationships and, yes, human sexuality, mine and yours included. I think to reduce any of this to a three or four page article, non-scholastic and very emotional in tone from both sides, to reduce this into 140 characters or a series of back-and-forth Facebook posts is tragically underestimating the complexity of not only human sexuality, human history, but of civil society, matters of morality, ethical discourse, Christian thought. And yes, it underestimates the complexity of the Bible, which I will lead you to in just a moment, because it's what I do, it's the only thing I know to do here. It's what I'm trained to do and believe to do. But it underestimates the complexity not only of human sexuality, but un underestimates the complexity of the Bible, its character, its role, its interpretation, and its application. It's my belief that human decency and human dignity demand that we as a Christian church, whether by pulpit, article, blog, or tweet, it is my belief that we must lead the charge in moving away from soul-reducing sound bites, that we must model a move away from 140 character framings that seek to summarize vast, painful, complex, eternal matters in a few emotion-laced and often highly uninformed lines. Our souls, the soul of this church, the soul of the Christian church, and the soul of this world forever hang in the balance. And watching over those gallows, watching over that balance, watching over that review of history is a humble church, a non-presumptuous group of people 
who love, who seek the reason and the rationale of the Holy Spirit to guide us into uncharted territories. Human decency and dignity demand that people like myself take the lead in moving away from soul-reducing soundbites that seek to summarize these vast eternal matters into those emotion-laced one-liners. Surely a review of history, a review of the church's history, a review of the universe's history, a review of our nation's history, and yes, a review of this world's history, A review of history reveals that complex matters, individually and corporately complex matters, matters like what do we mean by inalienable rights, matters like suffragism and the push to allow voting. Matters like civil rights, governance of nations, rules of war. What constitutes cruel and unusual punishment? Surely history tells us that our understanding of mental illness, the reality and treatment of addiction, women's roles and rights, the defense of children born and unborn. Surely history tells us that these matters are arbitrated not quickly, but they are arbitrated, even adjudicated, over much time and only after much discourse. And history also tells us something And it has borne on my heart heavily since I read the GQ article the first time. History tells me that the flow and good evolution of these matters' progress has been at times shot down and shut down by the harsh hand of tyranny, bullying, fear and imposition and I know well about the mediums of imposition the mediums of pen, throne and even pulpit who else gets to sit week after week stand week after week and speak to a silent body of people and I know that not only has pen and throne been used to cut off the progress of good conversation, but the insecurities, presumption, and arrogance of clerics all around this world, our religion and others, have often shut down through the harsh hand of tyranny and religious imposition other ideas and the free exchange of those ideas with a quick shrug of the shoulder, an extension of a papal ring, or what else? But history also reveals that like a living blade of grass, a living blade of grass verdant and touched by the hand of Almighty God, like the living blade of grass that subtly, quietly pierces its way through the rigid concrete and rock of life. It is my belief, and I believe history reveals, that in spite of tyranny, imposition, and bullying, that reason, love, rationale, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the image of God in all of us prevail. And over time, rationale, love, and reason, the guiding hand of God's Spirit release from prison these ideas and at times we see glorious representations like Nelson Mandela who comes out of a prison and ascends to the presidency. 
irrepressible voices, irrepressible conversations that can only be quelled so long. Unless we oversimplify the matter. And unless you race ahead in the game and try to decide where I am and where I'm going with this. May I clearly say that there are always prisons on both sides of every issue. There is bullying, demagoguery, tyranny on the GQ side and the Phil Robertson side. Lest we oversimplify, we must remind ourselves that the man who ascended to the presidency of South Africa, I believe, had to first repent from a prison far greater than the South African prison, and it was the prison of his own hatred. It was the prison of his own abusive ways. It was the recognition that you cannot cure evil with evil. And in his own heart, Nelson Mandela had to repent and heal from his own violence. And it was that that led him to ultimately say South Africa would not be healed by the liberation of white men upon black women. South Africa would not be healed when black people are celebrated and liberated by white people. But he said ultimately South Africa will be healed when white people are liberated through the forgiveness of bitter black hearts. Then he said we will be free. And it is for that reason, Terry, that he stood on the day of his inauguration with two men who humbly stood, who had served as his captors and heaped cruelty on him and his time in jail. Lest we oversimplify the matter and make this about liberals or conservatives, May I say there are martyrs and persecutors abounding on both sides and Phariseeism is not about liberal or conservative. Phariseeism is a deep-rooted insecurity that with great fear separates me from the other, feigns arrogance and says, you're stupid and I am right. Phariseeism is I am right and you need to listen to me and you have nothing to say to me and the world will be a better place if everybody just sees it like I do. And that attitude abounds on both sides of every matter. Evil never tempts only one side. Evil never picks one extreme. Equal is an equal our, our evil is an equal opportunity employer and it incites both sides with its greatest weapon. It incites Whigs and Tories, Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and liberals. It incites, it incites sports enthusiasts from Louisiana and urbane writers from New York with its greatest weapon. Fear. Fear. For if it can keep camps apart, if it can separate us and push us through fear of one another, those folk in New York, those folk in the backwood countries of Louisiana, Arkansas, if it can separate us, those blue, those red, those Democrats, those Republicans, those Protestants, those Catholics, those Jews, those Christians, those rich, those poor. If it can whisper into either ear and keep us apart from one another behind walls, if it can separate us so far that we lose the ability to see one another's tears and to hear one another's laughter, then it has accomplished its plan. And when it separates us so vastly far from one another that we can no longer see those tears and hear that laughter, then it yields in us our greatest ignorance. And that ignorance is that on the other side of this issue are people who in many ways are just like me. They love their dogs, they rejoice at the birth of their babies, and they marvel at sunrises. They revel in their grandchildren. 
It yields in us, fear does, the ignorance through lack of sight, that these are people who were created in the image of God, who bleed red blood and cry clear tears and are loved and valued by the divine just as I. And I will tell you that as a follower of Jesus Christ, it is here perhaps that I am most drawn to him. It is this rejection of fear as a leader, as a human being. It is his rejection of fear, his unwillingness to yield to the illicit temptation that all of us face. Phil faced it and the guy writing the article faced it. But Jesus was unwielding. He would not yield to the temptation to demonize, angelize, or polarize. And that compels me to Jesus. He was born into a polarized world of zealots and extremists. He even called some to be his disciples. And in the very end, when the man who walked on water, the man that Jesus brought to his most innermost place, when that man pulled out a sword, Jesus broke and said, if I, if I didn't have enough to do with Pilate and Rome, here I am after all of this time still dealing with you, son. Put up your sword. I will have none of that. I will receive no victory yielded through blood and force. Do you not know me, Peter? And to that end, the Bible said Peter went into the darkness and hours later when a woman said, you're one of his, Peter was honest when he said, I don't know him. Born into a world of zealots and extremists, bringing them even close to him, even to the very end. Born into a Roman world that just knew if the barbarian world would listen to us, we are the fulcrum of humanity. We are the fulcrum of civilization. We are the center of the God's world. We are God's capital city. Born into a world of Romans who just knew if the barbarians around this globe would yield to their new way, the world would be fixed. And I must tip my hat to the Romans and say they were indeed a precocious society. But Stephen, they were not the kingdom of God. Born into a world of Jewish extremists who just knew if the people would repent fully and return to the Bible. Yes, the Bible. Born into a world surrounded by his own people who were convinced that if we would just get back to the word, back to the Torah, Rome would be quickly dispensed and God's kingdom would come. I am compelled by this one who was born into a world where both sides were willing to die for their way, both sides were sincere in their opinion, and both sides ardently, vociferously, both sides desperately tried to enlist Jesus for their cause. And even after he died, they wrestled over his shoes. And like thieves, they gambled them away until one left with one shoe and the other with the other, and none was the better for walking. Both sides desperately trying to climb a hill called Mount Calvary. People on every hand trying to put their flag in that vast moon called Golgotha and say he belongs to us. And yet he would have none of it. Even when those who loved him most sang his song and worshipped him, tried to make him king, he would have none of it. He rejected the idea of a two-sided world he rejected the idea that there was only one group that had hope for eternity. He rejected the idea that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were the bastions of that truth and prostitutes and tax collectors had no opportunity, nor Gentiles for that matter. He rejected the idea of a two-dimensional universe. He rejected the simple dualism of legalistic thought. 
He was the champion of a new way. He was the one who always pointed to a third way. He pointed to a third way, and upon the initial read, you might think that that third way was always held in tension between the two poles. And yet when you truly read Jesus and follow Jesus, you find that often the third way was not between the two poles. It was completely outside of them. It was plainly different than them. Plainly and plainly. It was on another plane. It was beyond them, above them. It was outside the scope of even their capacity to consider. It is his life that inspires me. It inspires me to move away from fear and it causes me to feel uneasy with Phil's GQ article. It is his life that inspires me to move away from fear and closer to my enemies. With great caution. To move closer to my enemies, not that I might embrace their ideas or even get them to embrace mine, but to move closer to them that I might at least feel their humanity visit with their tears and hear how they feel about their children. It is his life that inspires me to move away from fear and simple dualism, to reject the simplicity of black and white thinking, to not yield to a muddled gray, but to realize the vast spectra color of hues and tints and shades that we can scarcely imagine with one conversation that cannot be framed in 140 characters or less. He is the one that inspires me to open my heart in love and to hear not only between the words, but to hear under the words and beyond the words. To seek not only to be understood, but to seek to understand to seek not corporate, or rather not individual victories, but corporate victories, to leave off with competition and embrace reconciliation. He inspires me not to allow the agendas of party and politics, either secular or religious, Democrat, Republican, Protestant or Catholic, he inspires me not to allow the agendas of party and politics to enlist my heart or this pulpit. Because when I look back at him in a highly politicized world, in a world embroiled in cultural wars for sure, I must tell you that neither Caesar nor the temple ever owned him. Not the Sadducees or the Pharisees, not the separatists or the zealots. Nobody ever owned him. And in the end, we're still left arguing which of these were responsible for his death. Jews, Gentiles, Romans, leaders, followers. And yet the reality was he himself said none of them were responsible for his death. Bill O'Reilly recently wrote a book, Killing Jesus. He worked hard. Mel Gibson in recent years, had a much ballyhooed film about the passion of Christ, and our Jewish friends, brothers and sisters, were deeply troubled by the fact that it seemed they were being blamed. We've been arguing about which of these. Was it Caesar or the temple? Pharisees, Sadducees? Was it the prostitutes or the scribes that killed him? And yet he was clear, none of them did. You can quit spilling ink and writing books, Jesus said. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down. No centurion, no king, no procurator. Know ye not that I could call 10,000 angels right now to take care of a corrupt temple and a corrupt throne? Nobody, Mr. O'Reilly, nobody, Mr. Gibson, nobody takes my life. The reality was it was this third way that got him crucified. It was the fact 
that there was no official party to stand for him when he walked up that hill because he never sold his soul to one. And the reality is, this third way got him crucified. His stubborn, righteous unwillingness to yield his force of love and redemption to any human party. He was continually confounding the parties just about the time this group thought he was theirs and this group thought he was theirs. The Bible said he would look at this group and eviscerate their ways to the core, bringing them low, calling them devils. And about the time this group would puff their chest out and say, yeah, this is our guy, he would look at them and say, really? Let's talk about you now. And just about the time, Steve, both of them were brought low, he would look at them with the gentle voice of a shepherd and say, but hear me, the kingdom of God resides in both of you still, waiting to be uncovered, waiting like a treasure, waiting like a pearl of great price to be uncovered in the field and the landscape of your troubled, broken souls, confounding them on all sides, by showing them how wrong they were and yet lifting them up and reminding them that at the core something was so right about them it was called the image of God telling them Jews and Gentiles rich and poor Romans and barbarians Pharisees and prostitutes that the kingdom of God was inside of them and no matter sin's effort it could never be erased off the visage of their souls he knew our greatest problem, oh yes, our greatest sin. He knew our greatest sin and that is why he came so countercultural, so problematic for those who had all of the answers, so problematic for the bullies and the tyrants, the ideologues. He knew our greatest sin, that's why when he picked one thing to again and again tell us not to do, and for all of you who see Jesus as one who was always leaning on the positive, a veritable Norman Vincent Peale and Robert Schuller. To some extent, that's true. But he did do some don'ts. One don't that he did again and again more than any other. The thing that he told us not to do, to stop doing, to quit doing, to get away from. The recurring theme in the don't message of Jesus was this. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Stop your fear mongering. Stop your fear. Stop your caricaturing, your stereotyping, your distancing. Stop your running. Stop your scarcity mentality. And I should say, in a religion, with a lot of don'ts like ours, we should revisit the don'ts of Jesus. You will find his most frequent don't was don't be afraid. Let go, he said to the Pharisee. Let go, he said to the prostitute. Seeing them both as rooted in the same insecurity, simply manifesting it differently. Let go of your fear. Let go of your conspiracy theories. Let go of your paranoia. Let go of your sky is falling scarcity mentality that is just sure that this is the generation when the world is going to come crashing down and the generation to come upon us will be the worst that has ever lived. Let go of your cynicism. Believe in the image of God. Try to believe the best about others. Give the benefit of the doubt. Move close enough to listen. Move close enough to see clear tears. Move close enough to hear subtle chuckles. Move close enough to touch and be touched unless you think I'm a Pollyannic idealist. He said, don't be afraid. And by his own life, Mike Wallen, he said, move close enough to be killed. Because it's the only way been to live. This is the third way of Jesus. A recognition that a world like ours will not be remedied and will not be advanced by oversimplified sound bites, side choosing, fear mongering, bullying, and by my estimation, downright incivility and meanness. 
But by thoughtful, loving, courageous, hopeful, informed conversation. And again, that does not mean that we're blind to the fact that evil has so infiltrated all sides of these matters that these conversations might get us killed. But we simply in the end believe that fear will kill us eternally. And these conversations are worth dying for. And evil and death will not end them, but will only fan their flame. I close today. Somewhere between, somewhere under, somewhere beyond Phil Robertson's well-documented opinion about my friends, my brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters. Somewhere between his sincerely held, well-documented opinion and the often radicalized, caricatured voice that I read in the GQ magazine again of the left that eschews him and he eschews them somewhere between all of this vitriol and crassness and body parts there is a conversation deserving of our energy and since I am not a professional historian and I am not a trained ethicist or a skilled political pundit I will not in this pulpit or in my Facebook, or my Twitter, or my blog, or my book, I will not attempt to be an official guide through the complex waters of history, ethics, and politics. God has not called me to those frames, though I respect them deeply. I am, though, a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am a servant of the Christian church, and my training and commitment is to and from Christ and Scripture. So I want to close this service by guiding a quick conversation here in response to my brother, Phil Robertson's GQ article. 1 Corinthians 6.9, the matter of malakoi arsenikoitai, effeminate abusers of themselves with mankind, soft men, and men who bed males, I want to say is a complex matter one worthy of much discussion and many tears, one not vanquished by 2,000 years of church history, but one I feel is stimulated even more today, John, than it has ever been. It is a complex matter that should not be oversimplified by Phil or GQ magazine. How to interpret an epistle or a letter written 2,000 years ago in a language that we can only translate through multiple form, how to interpret an epistle like the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians is a complex matter. To make that clear, one needs only look a few chapters past the words that Phil chose to quote in the Corinthian letter in the GQ magazine article. Phil chose to represent his own faith <clears throat> He chose to represent Christianity as he knows it by pointing to a scripture, 1 Corinthians 6, and thereby feeling satisfied to make a decision about homosexual people. It is of great interest to me as I try to lead this church in a fair, loving appreciation of scripture that this complex matter is only supported in its complexity by the chapters that follow, each of which I could take and use as an example, but I will choose one of them, five chapters after 1 Corinthians 6 in the same letter to the same people by the same hand, and that text is 1 Corinthians 11, and I want you to read it with me before we go home. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you because you remember me in everything and you follow closely the teachings just as I gave them to you. But I want you to understand this. Get ready for complexity. The head of every man is Christ and the head of a woman is the man. 
and the head of Christ is God. Much complexity, worthy of discussion. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesied with his head covered brings shame to his head. And I might add, I think Paul would say, every man who prays, prophesies, plays the keyboard, the guitar, or the drums. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered brings shame to his head. But every woman who prays or prophesied prophesies with her head uncovered brings shame to her head. Has any woman prayed in this room today? Complexity. Any woman who prays or prophesies Three chapters later, he is clear that women should not be allowed to prophesy. Complexity. How does he in 1 Corinthians 14 saying, I don't allow women to prophesy, yet here he said, a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered brings shame to her head. Complexity. A woman who prays or preaches with her head uncovered, without a veil, it's the same as a woman who has her head shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But since it is shameful for a woman to cut off her hair or cut her hair, as my world interpreted this, if a woman, since it is shameful for a woman to cut off her hair or to shave her head, she should cover her head but a man should not cover his head because he is the likeness and glory of God but woman is not the likeness and glory of God she is man's glory much to discuss there <laughs> man did not come from woman but woman came from man, and man was not made for woman. Man wasn't made for woman. Woman was made for man. And duck calls go off everywhere. <laughs> so that is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. But in the Lord, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. This is true because woman came from man, but also man is born from woman. But everything comes from God. Now here we go. Decide this for yourselves. Is it right for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Even nature itself. And for everybody who says, well, you got to understand the context. Paul says the context is nature. The context isn't Corinth, the context isn't the first century, the context is not the Mediterranean world, the context is nature itself. He's not talking about Corinth, he started the whole thing by talking about the hierarchy in the Trinity. Nature itself teaches you that wearing long hair. Has anybody seen a picture of Phil Robertson lately? I'm not trying to confuse. I'm trying to humbly say these are complex matters and it is not fair, Rob, for us to pick and choose selectively as is convenient to us. Where we want to throw around contextualizing and not contextualizing. Nature, not Corinth. Nature teaches you that wearing long hair is shameful for a man. But long hair is a woman's glory. Long hair is given to her as a covering. Some people may still want to argue about this, but I would add that neither we nor the churches of God, this isn't about Corinth, neither we nor the churches of God have any other practice than this. 
I have no doubt that Phil Robertson is a good man, and I consider him a brother in Christ. He's getting paid very well to put his neck out there and his life and his words on the line, so I will use them respectfully because he seems unabashed to offer them. I have no doubt, based upon what I have seen of him, that he has read that text, as well as 1 Corinthians 6, and I have no doubt that he has an interpretation and application which allows him. He has read and interpreted this scripture, and he has done the same thing all of you have done, and it has allowed him to grow his hair long as a man, and it has allowed him to allow, I'm sure, allow Miss Kate to keep her short. And I just want to say, I ultimately agree with his conclusion that men can pray with hats on, and I'm fine with them wearing them when they play drums or keyboards. I'm also fine with men who like their hair long, if they so choose. I agree with Phil that 1 Corinthians 11 now can be interpreted and applied in spite of how face-valued it seemed. I do agree, Jim, that women can pray, even prophesy or preach, without veils on their head, and yes, they can cut their hair even short if they choose. Our interpretive reasons, Phil's and mine, our methods that yield these conclusions, I'm sure, are very different but I want to say this, and I want everybody to hear me. I say this with no sense of sarcasm, but I say it sincerely in hope for civil discourse. The question I have for not only Phil, but for the Christian church, and you might not feel like you could say this because you're not that informed, but I've been doing this for 30 years. I know this book. I know our history. And the question I have on your behalf for Phil and the entire Christian church is why do we handle, interpret, and apply the 6th chapter of 1 Corinthians differently than we do the 11th chapter? How can we, Pam, read 1 and chalk it up to context when there's nothing about that chapter that spoke of an immediate context. Steve Register, it spoke more of eternal, universal, natural, cosmic principles than the sixth chapter did. I said a few days ago, forgive me for the length of this, but I hope this sets the tenor for where we go this year. I said a few days ago, and picked up a fork and cut pieces of catfish back in Arkansas. And because she had fed me my whole life, it was the most awkward, uncomfortable thing. And for a while, Karen, I, I, I couldn't do it. I just cut it off and I'd put it in her hand. And then when her Alzheimer's hand would tremble and drop it, I finally thought, well, shoot. And I got it to her mouth, and my grandmother, a woman of dignity and valor, she pushed and pressed and tried to get a few bites down, and she still knows my name. A few years ago, when she was a bit more clear in a rest home that wasn't quite as intrusive or helpful, I sat with her, and she said, Stan, I'm going to do it. I said, what are you going to do, grandmother? She said, I'm going to cut my hair. Now, you laugh, and I get it, but if you came from our world, Thelma, you would know that this was a matter of gravitas. I looked at her, Scott, and I said, grandmother, you've never cut your hair since you was a little girl. This has been a part of your union with God. We read 1 Corinthians 11 straight. We didn't contextualize it. We were conservative. We were fundamentalist. Sheila, we took the thing. We didn't contextualize here and not contextualize there. We put our divorcees away. We didn't cut our hair. We took it all. And I said, can you do this? 
Now, theologically, I knew it was fine, but what was troubling me was this had been a part of our faith. I don't take Phil Robertson's faith any less sincerely or seriously as I do the poor guy who was writing the article who appeared to have no faith. I'm sure they were sincere. And my grandmother said, I can't even lift my arms anymore to comb my hair. And I said, but grandmother, if you feel it's wrong in your heart, and she patted me on the leg and she said, I'm at peace with the Lord. And I thought, come on, church. Not yours, mine. Come on, little Pentecostal church. I, I, I had to leave it because I couldn't sit by and keep watching little girls like my sister set up in the stands every recess in their dress while all the other kids played and they had a special note for religious conviction. I couldn't. I watched our girls. Our girls wanted pretty hair too. But I watched them because they could not cut their hair, it said. I watched them. They would get their hair wet, put it in the freezer, and when it froze, they would pull it out and put it between the pages of a book and break it because they were breaking their hair off, not cutting it. Oh, the depths that legalism leads us to. They would burn it off with a curling iron because they couldn't cut it. I watched a beautiful little girl who just wanted a little bit of blush and a little bit of a trim. And could she wear culottes, maybe? And I just want to say, on watching a 75-year-old woman who barely can lift her arms, my other grandmother was the rebel in the church. She had a stroke. It's what led her to Jesus. And yet her stroke rendered her incapable of fixing her hair, so she kept her hair short. And that precious little godly woman sat there and got harangued every third Sunday to the day she died. And I just want to stand up and say, come on, church. Surely we've got to read 1 Corinthians 11 differently than that. That's the voice that Wilberforce used when he said, come on, church. I know he said, slaves submit to your masters. Masters be good to your slaves. Come on. I want to say to the folks at GQ Magazine and all the smart folk who've thrown the Bible away and say it's nothing other than Mein Kampf, come on. You've got to know better than that. With all of its frailties everywhere, Christianity is gone. In spite of our brokenness, we have lifted people in humanity. There's got to be a third way. There's got to be a Christianity and a way of decently following Christ that my son does not have to pick between Phil Robertson and GQ magazine. There's got to be a third way where my son doesn't have to pick between a Democrat platform and a Republican platform and assume that one side got all 93 issues right and you got to pick it. We've got to create a world in the church, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, blog, throne, or pulpit. We've got to produce a church that can sit down with texts like 1 Corinthians 11, which we did long ago, most of us. Our group was way behind. And say, no, I think it was fine that Melissa Green prophesied with her head uncovered today and led the church in prayer. And I know what, the, what it says, but i got to find out what it means for us today. And I just want to ask, how do we handle one chapter in 1 Corinthians so differently than we do another chapter? And I want to admit to you, I don't claim to have the final answer to that question. I'm not a smart aleck, but I am deeply bothered and I am deeply committed to that conversation. I love the Bible. I love Jesus. And the secularism and the vapid spirituality of a young man who writes an article after drawing Phil out and slinks back to New York 
and I don't know where values are, what values, what means anything to him. The extremes of that and a man who decides to talk about body parts and look at sons like your boy and say, come on, men, what's wrong with you? These two extremes are missing the vast, pat, deep, complex spirituality at hand. And if we are to be a brave and a courageous church, we must be willing to go to those texts, leave off with our fear, leave off with our anger, and listen. Or not. But around here, we're going to learn to listen. And in the absence of certainty, we can be decent, loving, and civil. And I believe the Holy Spirit is going to do what he's always done. He's going to lead us and guide us through much difficulty, war, trouble, and trauma. He's going to lead us by love until we can sit at peace with the scriptures, God, and this life. Can you say amen? Well, thank you, the three of you that like that. Thank you. And to that end, we pray, sweet Christ, may we be good to one another. And again, I ask forgiveness, Lord, if in any way I have been unkind, uncivil, unfair, snide, or sarcastic in reference to Phil Robertson, who is my brother, he's obviously a sincere man who loves his family, and I would even believe that in his way he loves people. Forgive me, Lord, if I have in any way been snarky about the young reporter. Who am I to judge the young man? Who knows what he wrestled with in the night after that article? Who knows where his pursuit of God lies? May we be kind to one another, leave off with judging, and give ourselves ever to your spirit and the scripture. We pray these things, dear Lord, submitting our lives and our church to you for this coming year. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said, and my New Year's resolution, I will not hold you this long the rest of the year. But this, brothers and sisters, was an important one. Let's go and live it in Christ's name.